Let's pray. Heavenly Father, increase your spirit within us. In Jesus' name, amen. Sir Isaac Newton graduated from college in 1665. Just days later, London and all of England, in fact, a good portion of Europe, was shut down due to the Great Plague. Newton then had two uninterrupted years to postulate and develop the basic theorems of calculus and physics and come up with his third law, which states every action has an opposite and equal reaction. By the way, that third law was accepted as valid and true until the invention of social media. In 2005, only 5% of people were using social media. By 2019, it was up to 79%. Newton's third law was thrown out the window because we discovered every action has a horrendously and overly exaggerated reaction, at least when it comes to social media. Scientists say this is the result of fear. The endless scroll on your phone overloads you with hundreds of news stories from all over the world, most, by the way, involving death and destruction. Multiple messages arrive simultaneously from friends and family and strangers, and they all need to be read right then and responded to. Advertising pushes you to accept the world's idea of the perfect body, the perfect life, and the perfect everything. And you know the worst part is there's no off switch. These things arrive 24-7. When you wake up in the morning, you've got an entire backlog of all these messages waiting for you. And you can't fix most of them. So your brain goes into overdrive beyond its capability of processing. And it either shuts down, which is an extreme reaction on that side, or it creates one of those horrendously and overly exaggerated reactions. Sorry, Sir Isaac Newton, you probably should have stuck with figs. Being made in the image of God, we have the ability to think about the past, imagine the future, as well as live in the present. And, and sometimes we get it right, and sometimes we don't. And fear, by the way, is always our worst enemy. Fear of a past that haunts us. Uh, fear of a future that isn't going to be what we want it to be. Fear that no matter what we do or how hard we try, it's not going to be enough. Fear that really makes a mess out of life. Now, most of you weren't in person last week. You were online, so you missed all the fun. But for those of you who were here, I just want to say thank you for handling the communion incident as well as you did. For those of you who weren't here, I tried something new. It's called Gowan's third law of reception. I threw all the little cups of wine at the congregation, expecting them to catch them, and they didn't. In reality, the truth was I bumped the table that had a very slickery top, and all of the trays just went sliding off. Now, I want you to notice the keyword had a slickery top. We took care of that. Everyone did exactly what they were supposed to. First, they got out of the way. Secondly, they waited until everything settled. And then, of course, they took pictures, posted it on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook, and said, this is why Lutherans never try anything new. Well, the truth of the matter is, some of the people prayed. Kayla went over and started singing. Several people helped me clean up. They were all perfect. See, the moment I bumped the table, I saw exactly what was going to happen, and it all played out for me in slow motion. And I, was all, I also knew that I was powerless to stop it. Have you ever had that happen to you, where, where you know what's going to happen and, and, and you just can't stop it? When the wine glasses and trays were on the floor, I had several choices. Uh, run screaming out of the building, ignore it and pretend it didn't happen, apologize, clean up, 
and move on. And just to be honest, I did all three of them in my head, and I chose the last one, the apologize, clean up, and move on, because I either believe in a God of grace and mercy or I don't. So in 2 Samuel 6, there's the story of Uzzah and the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark had been captured by the bad guys, and they'd kept it for a while. King David, not Indiana Jones, went out and rescued it, and David does a quick poll of his leaders. So should we bring it back to Jerusalem? And of course, they all say absolutely, and they grab a cart and a couple of oxen, and, uh, oxen, and they start a parade with dancing and music and trumpets, and they're going to parade all the way back to Jerusalem. Everything was going great until they came to a threshing floor. That's where you crush the wheat, and it's really, really slickery, just like the tables that we were using for the communion trays. And its ox stumbles, and Uzzah, the lead attendant, reaches up to steady the cart and the ark so it doesn't fall into the mud, and he's immediately struck dead. Everybody stops. A couple of things. First, King David never asked God what he thought about bringing the uh, ark back to Jerusalem and how they should do it. Second, when God told Moses how to build the ark, it was specifically designed with these rings that poles went through, and it was to be carried everywhere it went. And by the way, um, it was designed to be carried by a special group of people, the sons of Kohath. Um, and then third, God never said anything about it falling in the mud. But he did say that no person should ever touch the ark, except, of course, the sons of Kohath with their poles and, and those rings. And Uzzah was not one of them. David was so upset with God and himself, he left the ark behind at the house of Obed-Edom for three months while he went to Jerusalem and, and did his best to figure things out. I mean, he was really angry with God. It wasn't really God's fault, though. The party turned into a funeral. Everybody went home in a very dark mood. David, though, did learn from his mistakes. He asked God, then grabbed some of the sons of Kohath who carried the ark back to Jerusalem from Obed-Edom's house. This time it all went perfectly. Now, quick rabbit hole. If I had the Ark of the Covenant and knocked on your door and asked you if you would be willing to keep the Ark in your garage for three months while I took care of some things, would you do it? Especially knowing what happened to, yeah, you know who. And by the way, if I left it in your garage, would you be tempted to go out and lift the lid to see what was in it? Lynn manuel Miranda, the person who gave us, among other things, the Broadway musical Hamilton, uh, he was doing an interview a few years back, and he put out a question that I really loved. He said, what is not in the world right now that should be in the world? What is not in the world right now that should be in the world? I'm going to let you think about that. I mean, I immediately came up with an answer. Grace. Then I realized maybe it should be love. Then I thought about forgiveness or mercy or peace. And then, of course, the Sunday school answer, Jesus. Now, last week was Ascension Sunday. The angels caught us staring at the bottom of Jesus' feet as he ascended into heaven and gently reminded us we had work to do. Now, to be fair, Jesus told us to go and make disciples of all nations, but he also told us to wait until God equipped us with the Holy Spirit. And so the truth was we were on Hawaiian time because we hadn't been equipped yet. So... That time, though, is over. Consider yourself equipped. That's what Pentecost Sunday is all about. It actually happened at your baptism, but I think you get the connection between the two. Before you think I'm asking you to quit your job, give your home away, buy some white shirts with thin black ties and a little black name tag, and go around the streets asking everybody if they have a few minutes to talk about Jesus, it's actually a lot more complicated than that. Oh, and by the way, you get to keep your home and your job. 
Jesus headed back to heaven around 30 AD. Uh, the church was up and running with 5,000 and then 3,000 individuals almost immediately. I mean, the growth curve was staggering. Uh, Jesus told them, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will, not you might be or you should be, but you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. Then he said, lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, the first 11 chapters of the book of Acts is about the church in Jerusalem and Judea and a little bit about it in Samaria. For the first 16 years, the church did a great job of talking to friends and neighbors, people they were comfortable with. A few, like Philip, went to the ends of the earth, but most of them stayed right there in their own little neighborhood. Around 45 AD, things changed. Peter got a glimpse of the world's very first video projector that showed this whole movie where God told him, uh, first, it was okay to eat bacon, and secondly, it was okay to hang out with not-Jews. In other words, goyim, people who weren't Jewish. Now, immediately, Saul becomes Paul, heads out on the first missionary journey to make a dent in the whole ends of the earth thing. And we have to understand things weren't easy. The disciples got arrested and jailed. St. James was killed by one of the King Herods, and yet the church kept going and growing. Around 64, 64 AD, things got really messy. Nero blamed Christians for the fire that destroyed Rome. He ordered all of them round up and killed, but the church kept going and growing. In 70 AD, Emperor Vespasian ordered future emperor, then General Titus, to completely destroy Jerusalem, and he did. But not before the people of God scattered over the whole Roman Empire taking Jesus with them. The church kept going and growing. Pentecost is a strange church festival. Back when Jesus walked the earth, it was a harvest festival. Everyone came to Jerusalem for a big party, some shopping, and if they had time, a church service and a sacrifice. Now, long before the church went to the ends of the earth, the ends of the earth came to the church. St. Luke notes Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. And they all arrived in Jerusalem. And they all came, by the way, because they may have spoke different languages and they had come from different cultures, but they were all people of the promise. Now, if Lynn manuel Miranda had done an interview with the Babylon Bee back then and asked, so what's the thing that's not in the world that should be in the world? And God would have chosen to answer. God's answer would have been the church. And people would have pointed to all the buildings and all the priests in their fancy robes, and they would have said there already is a church, and then God would have said, the church I have in mind is very, very different. Now, for people outside the church, when someone says they became a Christian, it sounds like when somebody says they became a high school or a college graduate. They envision becoming a Christian involving classes and tests and confirmation and baptism. And don't forget all those offerings. And when you've satisfied all the requirements, you are officially a member of the Christian club. To those who happen to be born into the church, you just are a Christian because your parents were a Christian and you've always been going to church and Sunday school. There wasn't much thought of it until Confirmation Sunday when the pastor said, so, and you said, I do, which allowed you to go back to your just being a Christian again, except now you've got a certificate to prove it. You know, when the first Costco opened in Hawaii in 1990, I stood in line, proved that I was pastor of a church. I filled out a form. I paid the $35 membership fee, and they gave me a card. Now, whether I ever went back to a Costco, whether I ever went back or not, they didn't care. 
As long as I paid my dues, I was a Costco member. That's not the way the church works. Becoming a Christian is more mystery than memorized fact, more questions than absolute answers. A life of faith is exactly, exactly that, a life that trusts in someone or something more than trusting in yourself. And certificates and Bibles don't mean anything if you don't have faith. Long before social media made a mockery of Newton's third law, in fact, long before Newton was born or thought of the third law, Jesus actually already started shattering his theory. You cannot come into the presence of God and not be changed. You either crucify God so you don't have to look at what it truly means to be human, or God crucifies and resurrects you so that you can learn what it means to be truly human and eventually become one. When you come face to face with Jesus, you cannot leave without being changed. Even if you try to settle into mediocrity and lukewarmness, it just means you're going to be constantly fighting the Spirit in order to justify your life of mediocrity. Some think Christians, some people think of Christians as people who necessarily must believe certain things. These are the doctrines of the church. The Trinity, the Lord's Supper, baptism, prayer, justification, sanctification, heaven, hell, substitutionary atonement, just to name a few. Christians must know the Bible. Christians go to church. Christians pray. Christians give offerings. Except all of that is totally backwards. Christians do all those things and believe all the things because they're Christians not so they can become Christians. When Jesus was talking to his disciples just before his death and resurrection, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes unto the Father except through me. He didn't say it was being a member of one particular denomination or saying a specific prayer or giving a certain amount of money or logging enough worship services or being able to check off all your memorization passages. No, he said, you would come to the Father by him. And this is the reason for the church. We are all of us in Christ. We are caught up in him because it is only in and through him that we can know who we really are, why we are here, and what's waiting for us when we die. The way we know who we are is, is by knowing him, who is the way, the truth, and the life. If we are truly honest and open with ourselves when we read his life and hear his teaching, we would cry out, you know what, if this is what it means to be truly human, then what am I? And if that is what life truly is all about, then what is it that I am living? And the church is calling us to help each of us learn to love one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, take care of one another. And the only way that can happen is in and through Jesus. Fortunately for us, at least when it comes to our life of faith, Newton's third law doesn't apply because the action that began in baptism and the catalyst of the Holy Spirit does not have an opposite and equal reaction. It can't. It is far more radical and inclusive and graceful than anything that we will ever put in. Otherwise, it would have all ended long ago. And I'm not just talking about us, I'm talking about the church. Starting around the 42nd chapter of his book, Isaiah discovered a new word. It's the word chosen. He and God ponder and debate who were the chosen people and what they were chosen for. The answer is a little surprising. They were not chosen to overwhelm the world with knowledge, riches, power, or just a general, we're so much better than you attitude. No, they were chosen to suffer and die for the world out of love. If we have a quarrel with the world and how it treats us and all the crazy stuff they do to get noticed, we needed to realize deep down it's a lover's quarrel. Because if we didn't love the world, 
We never bother to tell them about Jesus or heaven or hell. We just let them figure it out on their own, which wouldn't go so well for them. We are chosen. And that in and of itself is a bit of a mystery. And now God made us his church, which, by the way, isn't a building or a denomination or a set of rules, but God says it is the body of Christ. So when God answered Lynn manuel Miranda's question by saying the church, the church is what is not in the world that should be in the world, what God was saying is, the world needs grace and love and peace and forgiveness. The world needs a soul. And for reasons beyond our ability to understand, he put us in charge of sharing all of those things with the world. And thankfully, every action by God has far more than an opposite and equal reaction. Because God is able to bend the rules, especially when it comes to saving his people. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.